Amen. I do want to mention Sunday uh, will be our, our communion Sunday as well in our worship service at 1130. Um, I'll be uh, preaching at the, at the end of the worship segment, the, the singing and all of that. And uh, we will be doing communion at the end of that message. So I say that because I want you to prepare your hearts. The Bible says let a man or woman examine themselves. And so I want you to examine yourself. I'm not going to examine you. You need to examine yourself in the Holy Ghost. And, and if, if you're right with God, I want you to partake. I don't want to, anybody to not partake of communion. And to some of our families who are maybe have not done communion with us uh, or haven't done it for a while, uh, if you feel your child understands and is ready and knows what communion signifies, I trust your judgment as a parent. And if you feel they can uh, take that and understand what it means, by all means, please let them do so. We want our children to also be encouraged to be involved with that. I feel like God has shown me a couple things about communion. I won't let the cat out of the bag just yet, but come Sunday and you'll find out. Uh, but I'm going to share with you a couple things the Lord has given me as we cast the vision for the new year. So we're looking forward to a great Sunday together. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God's going to do wonderful and amazing things in Jesus' name. I do ask you to keep me in your prayers. I'm heading out tomorrow. Just got back from St. Louis and had a great time with our kids and our eclectic, that's what he called it, right, Shannon? Eclectic family. Uh, Scott Graham, we were there with them. And anyway, but um, <clears throat> I'll be traveling now uh, the opposite direction, west. Uh, thankfully, the snow has dissipated. The roads are opened up again, but I've got to go to Alliance and North Platte, uh, and I'll be back um, sometime early Saturday morning and look forward to seeing everybody on Sunday in Jesus' name. So, if you'd pray for me for traveling, I'd appreciate that as well. So, at this time, we'll dismiss our, our uh, teens and our children. We appreciate all of the uh, help that we have and the staff that serves so faithfully, our nursery. Thank you so very much. For all that you do week in and week out, God bless you in Jesus' name. And to everyone else, if you would join me in the book of 1 Peter, chapter number 5. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Brothers and Renfro, good to see you guys. God bless you all so much. Glad you're here. Home away from home. Amen. And I just have one question, Alicia. I thought I was like best or something because you said with my bestie or something. I'm like, you know, but no, I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But so glad you guys are here, and uh, thank you so much for being here in church with us tonight. And Atkins, my goodness, our other family away from home, away from home. Good to see you guys. Love you all so much, and uh, glad you're with us. And uh, when all of you travel back, we pray you have safe travels as you return back to your homes and churches. First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 12. <clears throat> I have had fun. Preaching and teaching through First Peter, and um, we'll be bringing it to a close today. And Sunday will be the final uh, part of this. Amen. But First Peter chapter five, verse twelve <clears throat> begins by saying, "By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God." wherein you stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Greet you one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen.
Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to worship you and exalt you as we did tonight. I pray tonight you would anoint my tongue as the pen of a ready writer to write your words upon our hearts. God, help us to understand, open our minds that we might comprehend the scripture. Let me walk in your spirit and not in my flesh. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said amen. Here, Peter is closing his first epistle, and he mentions Silas, that's um, uh, Silvanus. Uh, he mentions Marcus, which is John Mark, uh, which is also the gospel writer of Mark. Uh, and he references these two. It is evident by what he says about Silvanus or Silas is that he has aided Peter in writing this epistle. It could be because of Peter's, uh, he's getting up in years. By the time he writes this, he's near his, his uh, death. It could be maybe his eyesight is growing dim, or just together they wrote it together, uh, and Silas helped him in some sort. He also mentions Mark, which is a, both a cousin to him as well as a son in the gospel. And these closing remarks, a lot of times when we're reading the Bible, you know, the opening remarks of an epistle and the closing remarks, especially Paul's epistles, pretty much the same thing. Hey, how you doing? Grace and peace be unto you. And, you know, he ends with, you know, live for God in Jesus' name, kind of, you know, summarizing. Well, a lot of times we just run right through those, but there is so much there if we'll just pause, slow down, put it in first gear for a minute and glean some things. And so in this epilogue, if you will, of Peter's first epistle, he underscores the purpose of all five chapters of his epistle, and we're going to explore them together tonight. And the first point we want to look at is unity and teamwork. Again, in verse 12, he mentions Silvanus, a faithful brother, and he mentions in verse 13, Marcus, two different people that have aided him and been a support to him in the ministry, specifically the writing of this epistle. Peter considers Silas a faithful brother. He also emphasizes the need through these words for unity and for teamwork. Amen? He mentions Mark, a son in the gospel and also a cousin to him. Let me just say this. There has to be and must be continuity of God's plan. When Jesus came and manifested himself in flesh, he himself, being God in flesh, knew that for this thing called the kingdom and the gospel and all of God to continue, somebody had to do it. Somebody had to take up the mantle. Somebody had to keep it going. And so he himself said, greater works than these shall ye do to his disciples. And we see that continuity continuing here with Peter to Mark and to Silas. Amen. It was a common union of them together, which, by the way, those two words, common union, is partly where we derive communion from. It helps, it, by doing this, it keeps God's church perpetual. I don't know about you, but I don't want our best days to end with me or with you. If the Lord tarries and one day I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren and one day I'm buried in the ground, I want them to have the best days. I want them to continue seeing growth and, and the power and the great things of God. 
And, and so did Jesus. He didn't want it to end with him. He wanted it to grow. He wanted his, in fact, when he gave out the commission in Acts 1.8, he empowered them. He said, you're going to receive power. And what are you going to do? You're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. God still wants that to happen today. We see this throughout the New Testament, this continuity, this common union, this teamwork. We see it throughout the New Testament and the early church. It was the rule. Unity and teamwork were the rule, not the exception. Now, I want to just pause here for a minute and say, I know I'm biased, but in this case, I believe I am right. And that is this. I get to pastor the best church in the entire world. And I know that because I have talked to some pastors. And it makes me wonder why they're still there. Or what's going on? Because I would not want to be where they are. I do not want to trade places. Oh, yes, we've got our issues and problems. And, and we're, we're imperfect at times. But there's a sense of unity and teamwork that I love that happens here. Amen. And I'm, as far as I'm concerned, we're going to keep it going. Amen. And so for the early church, that was the rule, not the exception. You see, Paul and Silas. Barnabas and John Mark, Peter and John. In, in uh, the third epistle of John, he mentions Demetrius and Gaius. If you trace the history of them, here's what it would look like. Jesus, John being the first generation after him, Demetrius being uh, John's disciple, and Gaius being his. So four generations, Jesus, John, Demetrius, Gaius. They're represented in the third epistle. Men and women, some of them unnamed throughout the Bible that we just know. For example, in Acts 17, the, the Berean Jews, we don't know their names, but we know where they're from, and we know they were more noble, and we know that they searched the Scriptures daily. In other words, we can learn from this concept of this teamwork that just perpetuated itself throughout the early church. In 1998, I went to... Because of the times, it's a minister's conference in Alexandria. Uh, they host it every year. And that year, uh, the day before, they had a special thing uh, where a couple years in a row, John Maxwell came in and did some uh, teaching. And a couple of times he was doing this, he was actually writing uh, a book while he was doing it. And, and he was actually on the stage, on the platform, writing some notes down of what he was going to add to his book while he was teaching. Well, to the present day, uh, you know, because of that and reading his books, listening to his podcasts, uh, I, I still love to read and, and glean from him. I don't know if he was the first to have said it, but he was the first I heard say it. And here's the quote. It takes teamwork to make the dream work. Now, again, he may not be the originator, but he was the first I heard say it. That quote has shaped how I serve to this very day in the church the district, etc. It would seem that Paul and Peter and, and others felt similar to what John Maxwell says. In fact, Paul mentions in uh, Colossians, we're going to look at it here in just a moment, he mentions 10 fellow believers and their contribution to the kingdom of God. In some cases, all we know of some of these people is one or two verses that Paul or others would write about them. Yet even though they're not well-known, even though they're not as well-known as Paul, for example, their investment 
is no less vital. I'm going to say that again. Just because you're not in this pulpit, just because you're not on this platform, does not mean that your commitment to the kingdom of God and volunteering wherever you may volunteer in the church is any less vital. I have said this before many times. I will continue to say it. Excuse me for being redundant. But I don't care how good the praise team sounds. I don't care on key and on beat we are. I don't care how well put together the sermon is and how effective it may be. If there's no toilet paper, if there's no soap, and if the, if the, if the place is dirty, the guests are going to look at that, even maybe some of the members, and not get anything out of church. And so all of you who help clean, thank you for keeping it clean. Amen. It's just as important. Jesus appointed 12 apostles. About 500 disciples regularly followed him. He commissioned them to go and preach and send out other disciples. And we know he would send them out in groups of two by two. We see this in Luke 10. And as the church grew, the apostles recognized the value of unity and teamwork, commissioning teams to also spread the gospel. Uh, go with me real quick to Colossians, if you would. And I want to build off of something uh, from Colossians that uh, ties into what we're studying here from 1 Peter tonight. Colossians chapter 4, and um, we'll start at about verse uh, 7. Now, now, this is Paul's you know, epilogue, if you will, 7 through the end of uh, the chapter. And, and you see in verse 7, Tychius, uh, you know, down on verse 9, you see Onesimus, and, you know, so on and so forth. You see all of these different people, verse 10, 11, and, and so forth. And so I want to take a look at some of these because they also highlight the importance. And Peter used two of them, and, and we'll talk about them in just a minute. We'll come back to Peter. But to use this as a segue about teamwork and unity, allow me to show you this because this was the reality of the church of Colossae. Tychius, the Bible talks about him in verses 7 and 8. He was well-beloved. He was faithful, unified in Christ and church. You talk about a pedigree. If, if all I have is two verses of me, you know, a thousand years from now, and that's all that's remembered of me, let it be that I was faithful, united in Christ and his church. That's all I need to know. Amen? What a pedigree. Paul deployed Tychius in advance of his arrival to encourage the saints. So there must have been some trustworthiness of this man to be able to go in advance of him. When the president goes somewhere, the Secret Service goes in advance to prepare the city, to, to prepare the security, to be ready for his arrival. You ever notice that anywhere the president goes, when he gets off that plane, his limousine is waiting there? It's not that he has a limousine in every airport. It's that a C-130 has flown ahead of him with his entourage. Not just his uh, limousine, but the entire Secret Service uh, limousines and, 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 and Suburbans that they use uh, to protect him. They've all gone in advance. Well, in the same way, Tychius was trusted to go in advance of the gospel. He delivered the epistle to uh, the Ephesians, and we see this uh, in, in 2 Timothy 4.12 and Ephesians 6.21, and he also delivered it to the Colossians here in 4 verse 7. Tychius served to equip the saints in Crete, Titus 3.12. His name means fortunate or fortuitous, and one could argue then that they were fortunate to have known Tychius indeed. Paul refers to him with words 
that every believer should aspire to. Verse 9, Onesimus, before he met Paul, he was a slave. He was running from his master Philemon. But upon meeting Paul and hearing about Jesus, Onesimus repented and was born again. He joined Tychius in delivering the epistles of Paul and testified of what God was doing in Colossae. Paul now says he is a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, and his name actually means profitable. And, of course, he was. The testimony of transformation made him fruitful to Philemon, to Paul, to the church in Ephesus, Colossae, and even to the kingdom of God still today. Verse 10. Again, we're in Colossians 4 here. Aristarchus, his name means the best ruler. And he traveled with Paul on many occasions. We see this in Acts 19, 20, and 27. He was imprisoned with Paul and was, on a, and was a fellow laborer of Philemon. We see this in the book of Philemon. He converted from Judaism, fully believing that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the old covenant. He had an epiphany. He had a moment where God opened his understanding and from the prison where Paul wrote his epistle, this man sent his greetings indicating he also knew the faithful saints of Colossae. Marcus is also mentioned in verse 10, which is the same Mark that is in 1 Peter 5.13. This is John Mark. This is uh, Peter's son in the gospel and Barnabas' cousin. And John Mark goes on to write the Gospel of Mark. Believers met in John Mark's home. We see this in Acts 12, 12. Although he was at the center of a rift between Peter, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, he eventually saw their reconciliation. He wrote one of the Gospels, one of the four Gospels of Jesus, and no doubt gleaned a lot of his firsthand knowledge from Peter. Mark received investment of Paul and of Barnabas of Peter and his mother and of others. And when he compounded that with prayer and action, he was able to influence others to do the same. What a beautiful testimony to discipleship. Justice is mentioned in verse 11. He was a born-again Jew. His name means just or righteous. We know little of his life except from this brief mention in Colossians 4. He worked alongside Paul and others in God's kingdom and his ministry comforted Paul. By the way, I don't know if I gave my title yet or not. It's the church at Babylon. Amen. So there, see, I didn't see it up. So that's what I'm preaching tonight. Sorry about that. Whereas Marcus fills pages in scholarly references, justice is a mere footnote. Yet because we do not know more about his life, does not mean it's insignificant. Paul mentioning him by name and recording it in God's infallible word, I'd say that's pretty significant. Epaphras is mentioned in verses 12 and 13. He was another fellow prisoner of Paul. What I love about Epaphras is he knew how to pray. He was a zealous and faithful prayer warrior, Sister Nancy. He specifically implored God for the saints. His desire was that born-again believers would stand perfectly whole in all of God's will. And he prayed to that end. Whatever else he may have done, whatever else he may have been called to, prayer was his passion. And whereas some have a prayer life, Epaphras lived a life of prayer. 
Luke is mentioned in verse 14. He was the beloved physician and a fellow companion. By the way, this is the same Luke that wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. He was a companion of Paul on his missionary journeys. Luke wrote the gospel, as I just mentioned. He highlighted Paul's journeys. His name means light giving. So isn't it interesting then that the gospel of Luke reveals Jesus and the book of Acts reveals Jesus. In fact, there's an interesting thing about Luke and Acts. Everything in Luke, imagine an arrow pointing to Jesus. And everything in Acts stems from Jesus, creating this apex around those two books. Luke was a Gentile believer, possibly was also Titus's brother. And we, we can assume this maybe from 2 Corinthians 8.16 and 12.18. His contribution to the kingdom of God reveals God's plan of redemption. Proving that God intended for whosoever will to experience His salvation. Demas is mentioned in verse 14. This is all Colossians 4. Uh, he was in Rome with Paul in the writing of the epistle to the Colossians. He was the companion of Paul, possibly helping him even transcribe some of his notes. Scripture reveals nothing about his conversion, but it's, it's very uh, highly likely that Paul was a part of it and involved in it. In Colossians and in the epistle to Philemon, verses 124 uh, of Philemon, Demas is a fellow laborer uh, with Paul and others. But that's all about to change as the allurement of Rome entices Demas. When Paul writes his second epistle to Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 10, he says one of the saddest verses in the Bible. He writes, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. It's unfathomable what would cause Demas to trade eternal treasure for temporal pleasure. Was it the pride of life? Was it the lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh? Did Demas ever repent and return to God? If not, what will he think when he stands before God and realizes he got the worst end of the deal? You know, interestingly enough, Demas' name means popular. So one might speculate if he wanted to be popular with the world. Can I tell you, you can't be popular with the world and with God. It's either or. It's not both and. And yet, while these questions remain unanswered, this much is understood. When Paul writes the epistles of Philemon and Colossians, Demas is faithfully serving God. If Paul had any clue that Demas would forsake the Lord and betray him, Paul never expressed it. I also believe Paul never stopped loving Demas because notice how he writes it to Timothy. Demas hath forsaken me. Paul took it personal. In verse 15, he mentions the brethren which are in Laodicea. Wow, no names there, just the brethren. Who these brothers were is unknown. Some think, some scholars believe it's just a reference to the church in Laodicea in general. Uh, others think that it is some specific men appointed earlier in the context or maybe deacons in that church. But whomever it was, and even though unnamed, they reliably helped others. Let me ask you this question. Can you faithfully serve if you're not recognized? Can you give of your time and energy to the work in the kingdom of God if you never get a thank you or a pat on the back? 
Now, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to do my dead level best to make sure everybody's thanked. I mean that. Because I, I, I've been on the other side of that. However, there comes a point in our lives when we need to do it just because. And if nobody notices, it doesn't matter. Because as long as he notices, that's what matters. And so I say this again. If I'm recorded in the annals of history as part of the faithful brethren and my name is not listed, I'm not going to go to God in eternity and whine about it. <laughs> because I'm, I'm part of the faithful. That's what matters. You, I mean, think about it. When we all stand before the Lord, what are the words we want to hear? Well done. Good and faithful servant. Not a title. Not a position. Not a role. Faithful servant. Nymphus is mentioned in verse 15 as a citizen of Laodicea who used his home for a church there. He had a house church. Here's what's interesting. His name means bridegroom. <laughs> so he was preparing a church bride for the bridegroom, God. Archippus is mentioned in verse 17. Paul addresses him here as well as in Philemon. He might have been related to Philemon and served as a leadership in a leadership role in the church. As Paul did with Timothy, he charged Archippus to fulfill his ministry. So while the scope of his ministry is unknown, we know that the influence he may have exerted is evident from Paul's charge. Now, Peter only mentions, back in you know, 1 Peter 5, he only mentions Silas and Mark. That means it's no less important. But I wanted to show you that to just help you to realize that there's a lot of people in the Bible. You know, if you ask probably 100 Christians, hey, you know who Peter and Paul is? Oh, yeah, 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 Peter and Paul, yeah. John, James, yeah, 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 yeah. You start getting down, you say, Archippus, uh, who, what? Right? But they're no less important to the kingdom of God. I mean, if you ask a UPC uh, person that attends a UPC church, you know David Bernard? They may not know him personally, but they're going to say, yeah, yeah, I know him, David Bernard. Right? But if I said Paul Kitty, anybody here tonight? Alicia? Yeah? Shannon? Probably. Anybody else? Maybe? Yeah? Yeah? So four, including me, right? That's my point. But how about this one? How about, how about Ann Wilkins? Anybody know Ann Wilkins? I know Shannon does. Right? But that's two people right there that were influential in my life, impacting me for the kingdom of God. Silas was Peter's faithful and trustworthy associate. And no doubt, he doesn't just travel with Paul and Barnabas, but also with Peter. Peter so trusted Silas that he gave him the epistle to deliver to the churches. Now, this is why TCOO develops our teams from a similar fashion. We want to create teamwork and unity. You've heard me call it the pastoral team, the praise team. That's not just empty words. The prayer team. These are teams. Why? I don't pastor alone. I don't want to. I want to serve with a team that helps to equip, help and serve God's church. Why? Because the Bible says two are better than one. They have a good reward for their labor. This is Ecclesiastes 
if you continue reading, verses 10 through 12 uh, begin to emphasize how the, the reason two are better, because one helps him up and so forth. But then he, he ends and he says, but a threefold cord is not too quickly broken. In other words, you, you start expanding that teamwork beyond just two to three, etc. It's going to become even stronger. The Bible mentions the principle of putting one, putting a thousand to flight and two, putting 10,000. And instead of two putting 2,000, which seems to be the mathematical equation, now when you get two harnessed together, it doesn't go to 2,000, it goes to 10. Or if you continue with that same math, three could put 100,000 and four could put a million to flight. So to my elders, I've mentioned a couple already who've invested in me. I'm eternally grateful. And I will pour into others as they have poured into me. To my peers who I serve with, Thank you, because I can't do it alone. I value your input and collaboration. Together is better. And to those in the generation following me and the saints that I pastor and serve, I want my ceiling to be your ground floor. Launching you into greater fulfillment. The children that are in the wing next to us and the youth that are in the building, uh, the, the part of the building below us, uh, I want our ceiling, us, us elders, uh, us parents and grandparents, I want our ceiling to be their ground floor for greater things. Amen. The next thing that Peter mentions is the true grace of God. He says here, I have written briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein you stand. So after his brief summary uh, of his entire first epistle, he draws the reader's attention to the fact that God's amazing grace both allows believers to suffer persecution and also gives them strength to endure it. He exhorts and he testifies. This means to admonish and to bear witness to. He both preached and taught about suffering the believers, but he also experienced it as well. Therefore, he preached what he practiced, and he practiced what he preached. He talked about the true grace of God. He summarized the entirety of God's truth in those words, the true grace of God. And in these words, he captured the fullness of God's truth. The oneness of God and His incarnation are essential foundations of the true grace of God. Amen? The new birth, being born again of water and spirit in the name of Jesus, is an integral part of the true grace of God. Sanctification, holiness, and modesty, inwardly and outwardly, are vital elements of the true grace of God. The return of Jesus is an indisputable truth of the true grace of God. And also, the reality of suffering in this world for the name of Jesus Christ are fundamental pieces to the true grace of God. And in that phrase, Peter summarizes the entire epistle of what he's written, the true grace of God. He conveyed and covered all of those in this epistle. And so he could summarize it as such. Peter's love for the true grace of God 
and even Paul's loving, passionate words in his first epistle are how I feel about the truth. If you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power why that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God I want that verse to be my life verse amen it's why you hear me pray let me walk in your spirit and not in my flesh he then says wherein you stand the true grace of God wherein you stand In other words, because others have stood for the true grace of God, so can you. I like how Peter does this. He doesn't say, wherein I wish you would stand, wherein I hope you stand. He assumed the best and just said, wherein you stand. Now, there's no way Peter would have known every reader of that epistle, or even today, every hearer of the message is going to stand in it. And all of us, unfortunately, have known people who have walked away. I mentioned Demas earlier. But he assumed the best in people. Let me me say it to you this way. Everybody, we're in class now. It's it's class. It's college. Alicia, what subject are we going to be in tonight? Math. Math. This is math tonight. And and so this is your first day of math class. Welcome to my class. And uh, I hope you all love it because if not, you're going to. Um, Now, imagine if I started my class this way and I said, most of you are going to fail. Good luck. (laughs) Right? How many are going to the admissions office saying, I'm dropping that class? (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Yeah. But what if I said this? What if instead I said, you know what? I believe you all are going to do great. In fact, every one of you today have an A. How would that make you feel? I'll never forget I had a teacher do that one time. We started the class. She gets up and she says, I just want everybody to know I believe the best in you. You're going to do great. And everybody here today has an A because everybody starts my class with an A. I'm like, wow, this is cool. Then she said, it's up to you to keep it. Of course, you know, there is work involved. But I started from a good expectation of I can do this, not You're going to fail. Let me say it to you this way. Don't ask me the book right now. I don't remember it, but I can look it up and show it to you. I've read it. I've I've searched the statistics. How many of you ever heard that uh, 50% of marriages end in divorce or something like that? You know, right? You've heard that? Did you know that's not true? Those uh, statistics are not based on fact. Did you know what the actual statistics are more like? About 80 to 90% success. You say, well, wait a minute. Hollywood and this and that. Trust me. Don't, don't trust the media. It's fake news. But seriously. So imagine if, if Sal and Linda, let's say you're engaged. Okay? How, many, how long have you all been married? 45. Wow, congratulations. Well, let's go back 45 years. Okay, I'm five years old and I'm your pastor. <laughs> 
and I'm going to give you marriage counseling. No. But imagine if you come to me and I say, 50% chance you're going to get a divorce. Good luck. I'm rooting for you. Right? You're like, oh, I hope I'm on the right side of that 50%. But if I tell you, you know, according to these statistics, there's about an 89 to 93% chance you're going to succeed. That's not including the Bible. How much better are you going to feel? So again, that's what Peter does here. The true grace of God, wherein you stand. He's starting from the principle of good, not, I hope you're going to live for God, because if not, you're going to burn in hell. Well, let me ask you, which kind of pastor do you want? I know we need some hellfire and brimstone preaching every once in a while. I know we need some hard preaching every once in a while. Trust me, I understand that. And, and when God gives me those, I don't like it any more than you do. Because he preaches it to me first, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> but how much would you rather have a, a sense of, I can do this. I can stand. I can live for God. Right? Doesn't that make more sense? That's what I love what Peter does here. The grace, the true grace of God, wherein you stand. I believe you're doing it. I believe you're going to keep doing it. I believe you're going to live for God all the days of your life. I believe you're going to raise a family that's going to live for God. It's why the, the dream team has heard me say this 101 times because since 2015, I've been saying it's my life model. I believe the best in you. I want the best for you, and I expect the best from you. And if I'm going to expect the best from you, guess what that means? I'm going to put my best in. Wherein you stand. In verse 13 of 1 Peter, he mentions the church that is at Babylon. Some have argued that this is metaphorical, possibly referring to Rome. Others have said it's maybe some other sinful city. However, I'm not sure that Peter or God, who inspired to write it, meant it to be figurative. I personally believe Paul, Peter or someone he knew, maybe even Silas or Mark, had traveled to Babylon with the gospel and started a church there. The Bible says these saints were elected together. That, that is the same word, eclectos, for, for those who were born again set apart from God. It also reveals the extent of the early church as they carried the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul mentioned saints in Caesar's household in, in Philippians 4.22, and John wrote to one of the seven churches, one of which, Pergamum, was the seed of Satan. Well, <laughs> If Babylon and Pergamum and, and, and there can be saints in Caesar's household, well, guess what? There can and will be a spirit-filled church in Omaha where everyone can be transformed by the hope and healing promised through Jesus Christ. Amen? We are and will continue to be a relevant and vibrant apostolic church in Omaha, experiencing the demonstration of the spirit and power of God. We are and will continually to be a culturally diverse and unified congregation. We are and will continue to effectively educate, equip, and empower disciple makers. We are and we will continue to evangelize Omaha with the hope and healing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are and will continue to 
train and credential ministers to preach the gospel. We will break the 200-member barrier, engaging the whole church in active commitment to the vision. We are and will continue to plant churches in all the suburbs of Omaha Metro as well as within the corporate city limits, and we will be debt-free, supporting every UPCI ministry locally, regionally, nationally, and globally. If there can be a church in Babylon, if there can be one in Caesar's household, if there could be one in Pergamum, there will be one here. Hallelujah. And that goes for Nebraska City, and that goes for Blair, and Danny and Rebecca, that goes for Norfolk, amen, that goes for Papillion, La Vista, brother, in the name of Jesus, everywhere. That goes for Marshall and all the surrounding areas out there in Illinois, in Jesus' name, amen. All across South Dakota. Come on, brother and sister Atkins. Amen. As Peter concludes his first epistle, he encourages loving fellowship among believers. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. There's another verse that says, greet your brother with a holy kiss. Well, while that might be culturally acceptable in the Mideast, we're not in the Mideast. I will shake your hand. I'll even give you a brotherly hug. I ain't kissing no man in this church. I can guarantee you that right now. And you try to kiss me and we might have a problem. But we know what he's inferring here. He's inferring that genuine sense of authenticity. It's more than just, hi, how you doing? And walking on. It's a genuine, hey, God bless you. Love you. Praying for you. Appreciate you. It's that connecting connection. Notice it says peace be with all of you that are in Christ Jesus. Emphasizing the moment or or the uh, reality of those who are born again. We are to love one another. Amen. What did Jesus say? The world will know you're my disciples. How? By your love one for one another. As I bring this message to a close I want to share some exciting things that have happened this year. Some of these numbers are still from the end of November because we're still counting numbers in December. But as of the end of November, the average unique attendance of the Church of Omaha is 173. In other words, we are 27 away from reaching and 28 away from breaking the 200-member barrier. We've welcomed more than 560 guests this year, and it's probably going to be over 600 by the time December ends. That has, om- that has almost tripled what we did in the last couple of years combined. Part of this increase can be attributed to increased involvement in outreach and evangelism. This year, three different times, we've handed out well over 400 gift bags in our community, personally inviting people to the Church of Omaha. We've also put up over 20,000 door hangers in various neighborhoods within a five-mile radius of the Church of Omaha. And as, as of Today, 67 people have been taught at least one home Bible study, whether at work, at school, in a home, on a job, somewhere. 23 people have been filled with the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Jesus. 14 baptized in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. And about 40 renewed and many more healed. By the end of this month, over 60,000 will have been given to various missions and missionary projects. 
We estimate and we continue to estimate that about 85% or more of our guests have already seen our live stream, our website, and or have visited our social media before coming. You don't know how many times I have somebody come up to me and say, yeah, I've been watching you online. Pastor Lucas was at Walmart and somebody come up and says, oh yeah, yeah, you're my pastor. And he goes, sorry, I forgot your name. Oh, I haven't come. I just watched. <laughs> okay, well, glad I'm your pastor. Please come. Amen. And, and that number continues, and people have, have seen what they can expect before they come here. Our Facebook followers this year increased to almost 3,000 people, and our Instagram to almost 500 followers. Our YouTube has 342 subscribers, our podcast about 250 visitors, and 30 frequent subscribers. One of my favorite things is this, and I, I double-checked and triple-checked the numbers today. Over the last few years, unfortunately, the, the number of volunteers in the church have, have declined across evangelicalism. It now has reached a low of about 34% this year that they're projecting from the Barna Group uh, based on the numbers they've already received. But the Church of Omaha has 65% of its adult members actively helping in some way or another in at least one ministry. That's double, or almost double, 68 would be double, that's almost double of what the national average is. I think that's pretty awesome. Amen. And I'm, please, I'm not sharing these to boast of, of anything that, that any one person has done except the Lord. And that team I've been talking about tonight, you know, it's because of team. I looked up every metric that we track. From attendance to volunteers, involvement, you name it. Finances, everything. On every metric we track, there is a consistent trend of growth and increase. And to God be all the glory. And so I say again, Babylon, Pergamum, and saints in Caesar's household, if there can be a church in there, these places, then there can and will be a thriving, spirit-filled church in Omaha where everyone can be transformed by the hope and healing promised through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that tonight? Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me in the name of the Lord? And again, I say to our guests, I, I, I feel that in some sense prophetically for the churches you're a part of in Rapid City and in Marshall in Jesus' name. Amen. I already mentioned some of our daughter works and whatnot. I believe our Spanish church, Brother Mario, Sister Priscilla, amen. God's just going to expand beyond our wildest imaginations. Amen? And so I want us, as we bring this service to a close, the final Wednesday night of 2023, if we can just take some time to thank the Lord for what He's done, and then begin to thank Him for what He's about to do. Jesus, we love you. Thank you, Lord. That there's a beautiful team we can work with. That there's great people that we can serve with. Lord, I thank you that we have an opportunity to be a part of a, of a thriving church. God, that you are bringing us to. I pray in Jesus' name we would do our part to continue to see it grow. And that, God, you would do what you can do. We'll do what we can. And we trust that you will do what you can. We thank you for everything we've uh, talked about tonight. And we thank you for what's yet to come in the future. And we give you the glory and the honor and the glory in Jesus' matchless and mighty name. Hallelujah. Come on, let's clap our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus.
Hallelujah. Oh, the Lord bless you in Jesus' name. Again, remember communion on Sunday. It'll be during the worship uh, service. It'll be after the preaching. And so between now and then, again, do some uh, praying. And, and again, I, I don't, I'm not going to judge any of you. I, I want all of you to take it and partake of it. But we know what Scripture teaches about that, so I want you to be prepared. So God bless you. I love you. You are deployed in the name of Jesus.